Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Talking Tolkien. Today, rather than discussing any individual chapter or book or movie, we're going to be discussing every chapter and every book and every movie, <laughs> um, because here we are at the end of all things, so to speak. Uh, I know that sounds ominous, but two years ago, we set out to read The Legendarium, which is more than just... Which is more than just the three books that we've read, Silmarillion, really The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, but those really form the core, and that was our idea, and we finished that section of it. So we're going to be talking about that, and we're going to be talking about what's next. Mm -hmm. So it's just me and Katie again, and I think, Katie, are we going to take it off with Elvish Word of the Day on this day in Middle Earth? Yes! Because I'm prepared. So today is November 10th. It's November. I know we talked about that last time, but still, it's November. I don't, I, how? Like what? Every time we like have a month <laughs> change, we're like, oh my God, how is it not January? But I feel like that's just an everyday Oh my life God, how too. is the passage of time so inexorable? <laughs> that is the ephemeral question. Uh, but today is November 10th, and this past week in Middle Earth, Going back to the 4th in 3018, the hobbits were in Rivendell still. They stayed there for quite a while, remember, at the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring. And that same day, the 4th in 3019, the healing of the Shire begins. That was just after the Battle of Bywater. And then on the 7th in 2941, back in Bilbo's adventure, the hobbits, or not the hobbits, I'm sorry, the dwarves <laughs> were uh, preparing in the mountains. Because if you remember, Thorin had kind of gotten the dragon sickness and they were not going to come out of the mountain. And today on the 10th in 3018, still the hobbits are in Rivendell and kind of recuperating. Which is, we all know, <laughs> there was a lot more to come afterwards, but still, yeah. And so that's this past week in Middle-earth. Moving on to our Elvish word of the day. I chose, I think this is the first, well, I may have chosen a prefix before, I think. But today I have a suffix, so a, a, a little different than most of the words that I've done. Um, so this is a Quenyan suffix. Um, so you put it on the end of a word. And what it does is um, indicate the future tense. And that suffix is uva. Uva? Uva. Uva. Mm-hmm. So you say grape in Italian. Because <laughs> the future is going to be grape. Hey. <laughs> you come here for my puns, ladies and gentlemen. I, I know you do. <laughs> you may even stay here for the puns. Who knows? All right. I would say we would discuss last week, but really we're going to be discussing the last two years. Yeah. So... There's not going to be a lot of structure to that. I think it's mostly just our personal recollection. It's a little more freeform, yeah, today. Yeah, so two years ago, Chase was playing Shadow of Mordor, and he knew nothing about the Legendarium, nothing about Lord of the Rings or any of that, and asked me just a couple of like basic questions, because I'm incapable of answering a simple question with a simple answer. <laughs> I started to tell him all about everything that I remembered. Which mm -hmm. then made me realize everything that I didn't remember. And so I just casually said, like, oh, we should make this into a podcast. Like, you and me and Katie. It's perfect. She knows it super well. I know it kind of well. You don't know it at all. And 
I mostly said that as like a throwaway comment. And he was like, no, that's actually like a really great idea. And uh, yeah, that's... This, this, Thus, this talking talking was born. Yeah, and can I just say that responding to someone's question with like, "What's this about?" and "Is this correct at all?" responding to that question with, "Let's read the Silmarillion," is like the best thing ever. <laughs> because there's this great quote by Tolkien that I've I've said before on this podcast, and it's that it is a curse having the epic temperament in an overcrowded age devoted to snappy bits, which I think is one of the greatest quotes of all time and also perfectly sums up uh, the type of reader that one is to really kind of delve into Tolkien, I think. And so I know uh, like several people who have said, oh, I tried reading Lord of the Rings and I just couldn't get into it. I said, yeah, well, it's not for everybody. And the narrative structure of it certainly is can can be challenging for for some readers so the fact that we just threw straight into the Silmarillion is even better because as we discussed the Silmarillion is much more of like this really dense I mean you know Lord of the Rings is dense but the Silmarillion is dense 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 this tome of all of these collective histories about the elves and uh, kind of the beginnings of of Middle Earth but nonetheless it was it was it was very much enjoyable for me to 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 jump back into that we certainly didn't start with the, the, like the traditional, I think the traditional first steps into Tolkien would definitely be the Hobbit for most people. But having started with the Silmarillion, we really got this great benefit uh, going through the rest of the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings afterward, because we had, we had established the world and you could see all these great tie-ins that of course happened later in the actual writing of the stories, but in in this in this chronology we've made of reading them we got a great benefit from it and it, yeah it really serves to add a depth and illuminate the text in a way that you wouldn't get if you didn't have that background and most people don't approach it that way i mean i didn't approach it that way i did the hobbit first mm-hmm. i was also like 12 but right <laughs> um yeah and i also don't think that most people would have the willpower to start with the silmarillion and like keep reading it because the Silmarillion is mostly of value for people who are already like invested in that universe and care about that. Because mm-hmm. if you just read the Silmarillion, it's kind of like it's like taking someone who's never had any relationship with Christianity before and be like, read Exodus. <laughs> you know, most people read Exodus because they already like understand the rest of the church and they're like, oh, yeah, this is like the history of it. So it's. It's not really, I don't think, the best way to, to hook somebody in. There, I mean, there are people who are going to like that. There are people who are going to stick to that. And I'm not, like, trying to say they're bad because I actually, when I found it really difficult to read Lord of the Rings when I was younger, I found it super easy to read the Silmarillion. Because Lord of the Rings, I'm like, what is going on? And why is this so slow? And Silmarillion, I was like, oh, my God, there's so much happening. <laughs> there's um, something every chapter, something new. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but... It's, I mean, it very much is just presented as a history. So if you're not mm-hmm. like a history person and like if you're not oriented towards that, then you don't have really the emotional buy-in as much. Right. However, going back and reading The Silmarillion, because th- this was like one of the first times that I really very attentively read The Silmarillion. I mean, I had read it before, but um, not quite as in-depth as, as we had done with, with the discussion. And, of course, having the benefit of, you know, knowing what was coming later in The Hobbit and in The Lord of the Rings, that, I think that, that paid off so well into our discussions as we moved forward. 
And uh, for me, it was great to revisit it and find, like, find new things that, that stuck out at me. Because we have discussed having read things when from a younger age and having a different uh, life experience at the time to now reading it as, I guess we could call ourselves full-fledged adults. <laughs> You have you have a different um, you have a different a different point of view, so that was something that I particularly enjoyed from from reading the Silmarillion again. Yeah, and I was thinking about it. What I remembered the most about the Silmarillion from reading it when I was a child is like the image that sticks out the most is like Maedros like chained up. Yeah, and now that I've read it again, the thing that sticks out the most is just kind of the and uh, this is not a unique like john has a an individual perspective on the silmarillion that never ever no one's ever had like that <laughs> this isn't that because it's the two trees and it's like oh yeah the most famous icon from the silmarillion but i mean it's really beautiful how you see that unfold throughout the lord, the lord of the rings and i know i every time it, it was even possibly a talking point i made it into one <laughs> but like it's just but so it's... lovely it's true. It really is. That's I would agree. That's one of my favorite kind of payoffs from reading in that chronology. And yeah, so I'm, I'm I guess I'll try to think of a favorite from the Silmarillion. The whole the whole thing. You know what? It's the voyage of Arendelle. So it's it's related. It's it is related, and I think for the same reason as as what you said. It it ties back into that imagery of the two trees. But yeah. I have always loved that poem, and there are, of course, several versions of it that that one can study in depth and intensely. But there's something about that poem that I really enjoy. Mm -hmm. So then we began with the Silmarillion, which I think was intended to kind of answer some of those questions that uh, this odd little video game had had, had brought up. And uh, it maybe the question really was just like, who is Mordor? I mean, who is Sauron? What is Mordor? Oh, who is Sauron? What is Mordor? Yeah. And my um, answer was basically like, oh, well, here's who, you know, Melkor but, is. But there was also for some reason, because I watched a little bit of, of uh, Chase playing that game then, and there was uh, an interesting appearance of Celebrimbor, I think. No, Celebrimbor is like the main character, I think. Yeah. Or yeah. like a reincarnated right? Celebrimbor. It's yeah. something very weird. Yeah. So that's what I found interesting. I was like, well, let's read the Silmarillion and then find out. And so then, yeah, we got a little bit of what is Mordor and what is Sauron. But of course, not very much. You need to get all the way through Lord of the Rings to really understand that. But then... Uh, I'll take uh, villains in Lord of the Rings for 400, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> this villain, sometimes known as King of the Vampire. What is Sauron? That is correct. <laughs> But then, yeah, we switched pace to The Hobbit. Man, switching pace from the Silmarillion to The Hobbit is like when you're going 80 on the interstate, and then all of a sudden, like, up ahead of you, you see this massive car, like, pile up or whatever, and then you slow down and, like, reduce to one lane, and it's a super slow crawl. <laughs> and that's not, like, to say that The Hobbit is boring, but it's just such a different textual experience than the Silmarillion. It's a change. It's a complete change of pace, and it it introduces you more to the 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 storyteller by means of like how how messages are com are conveyed through the through the through the character and through the story. I think. Yeah, because I mean, 
the moment at the end between Bilbo and Thorin, you never get something like that in Silmarillion. Right. There are, there are moments in the Silmarillion that are emotional, but they're emotional because you, the audience, have been made aware of, like, the contextual importance, you know? Mm-hmm. Whereas, well, I say made aware. You, you've basically been told, like, so-and-so is an important elf king who, and then, you know, and then maybe you see him slain after you've been reading about this person for five or six chapters. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's sad. And the first Ken slaying is very sad. But it, you know, it's sad from this historical context. It's not really sad from a personal context. We, we didn't really know the Noldor, but we knew Bilbo and Thorin. Right. So, and of, you know, and of course, it's an entirely different style of, of, of book between the Silmarillion and the Hobbit. And that's, you know, I always like to say that the, the Hobbit is like a perfect fairy tale and... It's a book that uh, that youth can appreciate, but that ad- adults can certainly appreciate and should appreciate too. It's it's elevated, I I think, and I feel there's a lot to draw from it. And there are even certain themes that are present in it that come up later in the Lord of the Rings that you remember. And I mean, of course, there are, are characters that will carry through too. But uh, yeah, reading The Hobbit as an adult for you know not not the first time as an adult i i i read it probably every couple of years just to go back to like a comfortable old friend i think but reading it this time gave me another experience to view things from a different perspective and maybe pick up on things i hadn't picked up on before yeah and then i guess Takes us to the Lord of the Rings, which has really been the bulk of this podcast and this, mm-hmm. the bulk of most people's experience with Tolkien. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, we've talked about the, the narrative structure of the, the Lord of the Rings, I think, being one of the things that is the most difficult hurdle for people to get over in reading it, because you do have so many um, parallel narratives. Right. Yeah. That are unfolding. But since they're parallel there's in different sections of it you get backtracking and then syncing back up and we have to leave these characters for a while and come back to these characters so that can be a little a little difficult to to get through i think for some readers yeah and the benefit of going through it all just one page at a time really is you get to sync up because you know if you're reading it personally and you're feeling like oh this is a little difficult it's so easy to just like put it down and leave it down mm-hmm. you're not gonna have someone <laughs> to prove a point google a calendar and be like oh no this is what's happening while Theoden is here <laughs> you know like you get that that's what happens when you discuss something right and it's useful for us i mean we're very lucky in that Tolkien fan base is one of the largest but also one of the most respectful and um, diligent fan bases out there and it that's only possible because of who Tolkien was like you know mm. he provided so many notes that people have been able to compile these incredible incredible timelines where you know you're like okay it's March 13th and you see where everybody is and it all works out and it all makes sense in the text it's like there's no fudging needed of the numbers right and that certainly pays off once you've gone at the end, once you've gone through the whole thing. Yeah. And what I really started to realize in this time 
But something I think I said either around the end of the two towers or midway through Return of the King. Uh, the books kind of stop being, or at least the Frodo sections, they're, they stop being about Frodo. They're entirely about Sam. It's true. Mm-hmm. And then the book ends with that pivot from Frodo to Sam in the way that, like, the world is moving from man, or I mean from the elves to man. And we see that personally because it's moving from Frodo to Sam. And mm-hmm. it's not that Frodo is an elf and Sam is a man. I mean, technically they're neither, but hobbits are man-ish. Um, <laughs> but even in The Hobbit, we you know we find out that like Bilbo is really interested in elves. And Bilbo and Frodo are, are hobbits of, of the elvish kind, effectively. And Sam is a hobbit who's more involved in kind of human pleasures. And what we see happen is that for for Frodo, the burden of the responsibility, like it does sap him. Like he has to he he, he has to put an end to his time here. He needs to leave. And mm-hmm. Sam has grown up. And I don't want to like push this too hard because Tolkien was far too complex to have anything be a simple one to one representation. But like you you see that and it's you know, like, it's just very rewarding. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think that's one of the things that's so interesting about uh, the character of Sam. Because he's the humble gardener in the beginnings, right? And Sam, Sam with all of his self-deprecating humor and seeming, seeming of being this simpleton, all of our hobbits do they go through this this transformation that's what this story is it's kind of it's a coming of age and all of our hobbits do have their sort of coming of age and rite of passage moments where they really step into adulthood and kind of transform and of course come back at at the end and defend their home um but sam is one of the most fascinating to me because as you said as the journey goes on yes frodo is the ring bearer and he carries this burden but yeah, we really do focus a lot on Sam. And that is this really interesting parallel that you can bring, as you've said, with Frodo being, and Frodo being uh, commended often by high elves, too, of speaking very fairly. So, yeah, you could draw an interesting parallel. Uh, yeah, they're parallels. Parallels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a good one. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. That you did that one. I shared that with the world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and of course, I, I don't think we can discuss Lord of the Rings without talking about all of the all of the themes that are present. So we talked at the very beginning when we began Lord of the Rings about briefly about, you know, the idea of good and evil and right and wrong and this idea of rites of passage and there are so many moments that we get within Lord of the Rings and that were even present in The Hobbit, too. We had great ideas of valuing the, the simpler things in life and uh, just a, a, good, a good pipe mm-hmm. <laughs> over, over riches and, well, yeah, riches mostly. Uh, people would be happier. We got that in The Hobbit and then The Lord of the Rings. One of the largest undercurrents, aside, you know, good and evil, for me is this idea of hope. And it really is pronounced at 
as as it as we come to the end of the journey and the end of the story, the idea of hope. Yeah, well, something I have not yet talked about, but want to now that we've finished Lord of the Rings is Tolkien was very famously Catholic, and I've actually become Catholic. <laughs> and looking at the works now through that lens there are a lot of things i see there which are very very clear ways to represent that but they don't feel heavy-handed like narnia is like oh my god they're going to heaven because they're good children and you don't have that one-to-one in in lord of the rings but there are elements of it that like i now see as being like very influenced by catholicism so this idea that kind of like to excise briefly the Lord's Prayer, um, you know, that will be done on, on earth as it is in heaven. Catholics view that as it's your personal responsibility to make earth be heavenly. Because if there is a battle between good and evil forces, then you, like we're here to assist good. And you really see that in Lord of the Rings because there is an ultimate creator but evil still happens. And with the exception of Numenor, like Iluvatar never gets involved. Iluvatar has lieutenants who are supposed to cultivate goodness, but there are, mm-hmm. there's still badness. And so it's, it's about that. Um, it's, you know, how do you act in a way that is going to contribute towards the original notion of good? And I mean, furthermore, like give us this day our daily bread as, as you get into Mordor, there's like hellish place. Like, well, I mean, but as you get into Mordor, like there's no food. They talk about that explicitly. And food is such an externalizing factor because it's like something you can't just make, you know, you can go to, I mean, we can go to the store and buy flour and yeast and make bread, but like, but you have to have things, yeah. You, you have to you have need the basics. <laughs> like external forces. You need sunlight to grow food. That's basically it. If we didn't have sunlight, we couldn't grow food. I mean, we'd also be dead. But as you know, as you look at, hey, how do we industrialize farming? Like there's a reason why we're still not able yet as a species to move that out of the field. We can industrialize the work in the field, but, you know, f- f- vertical farms in cities, you know, or in skyscrapers, stuff like that, like, we still are are just on the very edge of that because there's this huge extent to which we as humans view ourselves now as outside of the natural world, but ultimately everything we depend on like still exists within that framework. And we're probably moving towards a future in which that's not the case, but I mean, that's definitely still the case right now. And that's definitely the case within Lord of the Rings because Sauron and Saruman are seen as kind of like, hating nature and destroying it and you know that just look at how the ants feel about Saruman it's they, they corrupt nature and they destroy it but it it does not actually acknowledge like that they come from it that they need it you have to use nature and you have to use it respectfully and responsibly and that I mean that's that's so obvious in Tolkien and then the last bit uh, you know you were saying like evil like Frodo chose evil, but go- like Gollum took it away because Gollum was more corrupted by evil. And that's like, 
when you read this and you're, it's your first run through and you've never experienced that before, that's a really difficult way to watch it happen because it doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense. Like from a narrative standpoint, you want Frodo to be like triumphant or you want Sam to be the one who saves Frodo. And like mm-hmm. neither one of those is really the case. Frodo is, is weak and corrupt. <laughs> and what saves him is greater corruption. And like, I guess I still don't really fully know how to process that or how, like, how to look at that. I think it's, Yeah, it's a very difficult concept to wrap your head around, I think. Because it is essentially to see your hero in the end fall and fail. And then the errand to be done by a character who, who, as you said, both, you know, Frodo, Frodo falls to corruption, essentially. Gollum had fallen to corruption. Throughout the story... Gollum is given several chances. He's taken pity on him. Gandalf even says Gollum has some part to play in the story, which he does in leading Sam and Frodo. Uh, even even though he does have his own tricksy ways that he that he exercises, Gollum has an essential role, and it's it's a, a very intriguing kind of gray muddy idea to sort of process that Gollum had nefarious intentions of course and and yet those nefarious intentions eventually do bring about the ultimate good in in destroying the ring and those nefarious intentions were also really given to him by pity you know, had had Bilbo and had Frodo and had even Sam not taken pity on Gollum, what would have been the outcome? Yeah. So to briefly go Catholic once more. The end. <laughs> no, I mean the, the end of the Lord's Prayer is, "Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil." Well, and before that, I mean, forgive me my trespasses and forgive those who trespass upon me. Mm-hmm. Frodo does that the entire time. Frodo is always forgiving Gollum. And if Frodo had not forgiven Gollum, then Gollum would not have been there later to deliver Frodo from evil. Like, maybe I'm being too, like, predestinationist right now or whatever. I'm not trying to inject that. This is something I've just realized, like, in talking about with you, Katie. But, like, Frodo personally gave way to temptation. But because previously Frodo Mm -hmm. had been charitable, his previous actions prevented evil from taking hold mm-hmm. yeah that's the first time i've realized that and that's in retrospect maybe one of the most beautiful things to call from this story is like mm-hmm. because it's such a messy moral concept to be like oh yeah yeah frodo kept being nice to evil and ultimately frodo chose evil but because frodo had not killed an evil person earlier evil person saved Frodo and killed himself like that that's so messy as a concept it's so messy to try and explain but it ultimately the message there is just be nice it's more more than being nice it's 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 have pity and have compassion and extend love to others Mm -hmm. and And 
pity and compassion yeah pity and compassion were things that have been instilled from throughout this text for a very long time yeah because even if you take a bad turn you never know what your history will how how that will help you and that idea too of even even the wise cannot see all ends is another gandalf quote uh because who who would have known that this would be the way that it that it would end yeah but see this is the great thing about literature because no matter how many times that you can read something or discuss something or interpret things you can always find something new to pick up on i think and the other great thing about literature you know as as you've discussed of being able to find some very personal reading of it yeah speaking of gandalf the uh the other day i was at a friend's place and he has two cats and we're just like talking about how much we love cats blah 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 and i was like yeah i actually have a list of of uh possible future cat names and they're like oh it's only <laughs> one i said give me a gender and a color <laughs> they said they said gray male and i said mithrandir i named my car mithrandir <laughs> now i really regret naming my cat jack because mithrandir is a much better name thing is like he's not even like a specific jack he's just jack and i mean i love him dearly and he's such a sweetheart and you can't just like change an animal's name six years later <laughs> i'm not gonna gaslight my cat <laughs> but that was an interesting tangent no oh, everybody loves kitties and gandalf it's true um yeah but i mean i guess my only real question then because there's a lot given in the denouement to the mm-hmm. celebration and appreciation of Frodo and the like, the full world. Mm-hmm. To what extent do they know how it happened? I mean, was that was the story of Gollum included? Did people know that? I mean, I assume Gandalf knew that, but did well. Remember, Sam is upset because people don't know that Frodo is really a hero. Well, but Sam is upset because people don't know the Frodo's hero within the Shire, but people in mm-hmm. the rest of the world do. Mm-hmm. So that's my question. Does the kingdom of Gondor, I mean, presumably they have a special place in their history for Frodo. Is that history one that includes... That includes yeah. what actually happened? That's a good question. That, I'm sure there are fragments of, their, of, of this out there in the Legendarium. And if you know, please share your thoughts because I'd re I'm, I'm really curious. <laughs> this is, this is, see, this is how good Tolkien is because it's like, I'm, I'm right. Uh, right now what I'm doing is I'm talking about the reception of historiography within a hypothetical history in a non real world. <laughs> like that's the level <laughs> of detail to which I'm like, man, I wonder what the reception is. That's the level of detail and world building. But yeah, and that's something that I had that, that I'd never really thought about, actually. Yeah. I mean, presumably it becomes public knowledge after the Red Book of West March does gain kind of greater circulation. But I don't <laughs> know. We'll see. What, what do you think Frodo's up to in uh, Valinor? I think that Frodo is sitting somewhere very quiet and either reading or writing so a do book. We also, like. Do we know what happens to mortals who go to Valinor? Like, 
Maybe this is a stupid question, but are there regenerative properties, or is Bilbo always going to be old and sleepy? <laughs> that's something that I don't know, but there are histories, and that's something that I'll delve yeah. into later. Because I feel, I, I I don't know, what feels just, like, right to me, like, in my soul, is that Bilbo would be restored to, not, like, fully young, but there would be a youngness to him. His yeah. youthful days. But I also don't feel like it would be right that Frodo would regrow his finger. You know, so it's like maybe I'm wanting <laughs> too much here. I don't know. Some more questions. Indeed. And there are more questions that are answered with more study. <laughs> Speaking of more questions. Mm-hmm. See, that was a yeah, great segue yeah. I gave you. <laughs> I know. Uh, I know a lot of you have questions for us. Most notably, what's next? And the reason we haven't really given you an answer because we haven't really had one ourselves. We hadn't figured it out yet. We, we set out to do the Legendarium as we described it, you know, three, three books. And we've done that. And we've thought, you know, there's more out there. There are Unfinished Tales. There's Tom Bombadil. There's Lay of Lathian. There's Christopher Tolkien's like 12 volume History of Middle Earth series. There's <laughs> Children of Hurin. There's Calervo. There's Beowulf. There's going to be Baron yeah. and Luthien. There's, there's so much out there. Um, so one thought was that we would always do Tolkien. And another thought was that we would, after, after finishing this up, change things up a bit and include other authors, look at other works. But we really wanted to stay true to the format that we've developed, which we really feel, take a, take a book, take a work, take an author that is loved but that might be difficult to approach. You know, these books are often, they're, they're dense. They're, they've got interesting narrative structures. And there's usually a, a group of people who love the book, but also a group of people who don't know how to approach it. You know, I think we've all picked these books up ourselves and read a book and been like, wow, I, I liked that, but I need to talk about somebody with it. And that, that's the direction we've decided to, to go from here is really take works that are dense and beloved, but maybe a little hard to approach by yourself and read them and work on them, chew over them together. So that's, yeah, that's where we're going from here. Right. And it's going to include, there are several works from Tolkien that we want to cover. It's going to include some other things as well. And we would like to hear from you, the listener. So we actually do have on our website, we have a suggest a book button. So if you have something you'd like us to read, please let us know and we will certainly consider it. And um, personally, <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to suggest this. My, my, the book I have wanted the most to talk about with somebody is Pale Fire by Vladimir Nabokov. But the book is literally written without a narrative structure, so I don't know how we would do it in a podcast form. <laughs> but if anybody out there has read <laughs> Pale Fire, please send me an email because... Mm-hmm. Um, no, so what we've decided to do is start with another book. This one, much more recent, uh, Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell. And this is my choice, my nomination, because this is a book I read a few years ago. And I've also seen the movie. So, hey, look, we have, like, hey, books. Some people see the movie. Some people... That, that's basically what mm-hmm. Talking Tolkien started as. Like, Chase has seen the movies. I've read the books. If you're not familiar with it, Cloud Atlas is six 
different stories taking place at six different time but they're kind of like nested within each other like like stacking bowls so the first story is the earliest and halfway through that narrative it just like stops and you go to the next story which is like 40 years later and it stops and you go to the next story which is 40 years later and so you read the first half of six stories and then you read the last half of six stories in reverse order and there are all of these themes and connections that run throughout the stories and it's very dense and if you've seen the movie the movie does a good job at portraying some things but it had to cut so much out that you know i read this book three years ago and i've been wanting to talk about it ever since just because there's so much there so that's what we've decided to to um to read yes as, to tackle as next, next. Um, obviously we're no longer talking about tolkien so we are going to be updating the name to interlibrary loan now couple things here i know some of you only came for tolkien we, we fully understand that and bear you no ill will if you don't want to continue listening to us but if you came for tolkien and you liked what we developed you know we ask that you stay and listen and you know give us a shot with other books so part of that is we have a new page in itunes we don't we're not carrying over our old ratings from talking tolkien talking tolkien is always going to be accessible and if you only want the tolkien episodes they're always going to be there this was also the way uh that we could figure out to do it so that talking tolkien would always be available by itself because once we get to a certain number of episodes episodes drop off of itunes so this way, everything that we've done thus far that's just Tolkien will always be there just as it is. And everything moving forward, including more Tolkien stuff and other stuff, is going to be a separate feed so that yeah. we preserve everything we've got Basically, so Basically, you can only display 100 episodes and iTunes. So the feed that you're subscribed to is automatically becoming the new feed for Interlibrary Loan. But if you want to share Talking Tolkien with anybody that page will always have the original 93 episodes and all of the ratings you know we don't want if if, if you gave us a, a good rating because you came for tolkien like we're not going to try and spin that and be like hey listen to this other show um but if you like us we ask you know sincerely that you please give us a new rating on the new page just because when you start brand new in itunes like it takes a long time to get that kind of search prominence And then the last part of this is, you know, this has been me and Katie for two episodes now just because Chase has gotten a new job and it's hard to find time in all of our lives. And Chase has decided that his journey with us is over. And I fully respect that. I mean, the dude's been podcasting for 10 years nonstop. And (laughs) you just need (laughs) a break. So what we're doing instead is Katie and I are going to stay here and we're going to have a third chair that's going to kind of swap out depending on the book. So joining us for Cloud Atlas will be my friend Sky, who I actually met in grad school. And he did ancient Roman art, similar to me, but in a very different perspective. He dug in Greece, I dug in Turkey. Like He and I are very similar people, but have very, well, we have similar interests, but we have very different approaches to those similar interests. So um, he'll be joining us next episode. And yeah, is there anything else to add? I mean, I think that's about it. You can, oh, I mean, the main website is and will always be theextracurricular.com. But if you want a quick link to the new 
interlibrary loan page. It is illbook.club, also known as ill. We're the ill book club. No. Ill, yeah, we're, we're the <laughs> ill book club. But yeah, it's illbook.club. And Talking Tolkien, right. like I said, will always be there, always its own thing. We understand if you, if this is the end of your journey with us, that's, that's fine. But we ask that you stick around and hopefully you like us and like what we continue to do. As Katie said, if you have any suggestions for books, there's a form on the website. You can just click the button, type it in. You know, we just, we ask that you give a lot of thought to, you know, what book have you read that you feel would benefit from more discussion? Uh, we, we definitely want it to be books that have a little bit more popular appeal. One thing that Katie and I have always been discussing, and it's been on the back of our minds, since we're both academics, like to what level do we make this show be academic and we never want it to become like an ivory tower so katie and i both come to this with you know a more critical lens than the average reader is going to have we've we've both studied literature and broken it down and looked at it and for me you know this is a text and what does it say about the historical time period and there's you know that's always going to be present but we don't really want to make it super technical uh this is my way of saying please don't tell us to read Ulysses <laughs> and that we will always be uh, just what we set out to be which is a book club a way for all of us to get together read a chapter of a book and then chew through it talk about it uh, what we can gain from it what what we got from the narrative structure what we got from from the subtext and what we got mm-hmm. from the text all right well since this isn't following the normal format, I'm not going to say like, hey, what's your favorite moment from the Silmarillion, the Hobbit, and the Lord of the Rings? Yeah. Um, but I do have a favorite <laughs> moment that I'm going to share, which is actually a week and a day old by now, but for time and okay. reasons, it was not included in the last podcast. The World Series. Did you watch Game 7? You know what? Oh I did not, but... The reason that I didn't watch it is I was exhausted on that day, so I came home and went to bed. And then I felt horrible, of course, waking up the next morning and see- seeing how Dude, great of a story that the game, best game was. Of baseball in hundred years. I know, like, I know, I know. We've always I did. kind of casually talked about baseball on this, the show, and I've always casually <laughs> liked baseball. But for me, baseball has like mostly been a thing. It's like, yeah. I'm in the mood to like go to a baseball game and it's like, here's the atmosphere and the environment. I just like enjoy baseball in that way. But I mean, I wasn't going to miss the chance to watch the Cubs win the world series. Also, I used to live like three blocks away from Wrigley field. So like, you know, the game Mm -hmm. was so good that watching it made me realize like, wow, I need to watch baseball more regularly. Like I need to follow you need to follow a team that's a good team and not the Yankees. I can follow the Yankees and the Cubs. <laughs> thank you very much. Yankees are historically a good team. The Cubs are currently a good team. <laughs> but what I mean is, like, the the game was so good that it made me, like, fall in love with baseball again. Because everything that I love about baseball, like, the mind game, the strategy, mm-hmm. all of it was so tense and physically present in this game. And it was absurd. I mean, it, yeah, okay. If the Cubs are going to make us wait 108 years, then they're going to make us wait till the 10th inning of game seven. With, with I mean, a rain the, delay. Like, 
if you made a movie out of this and you're like, this is a purely fictional story, nobody would believe it because so many contrived things happened. You're like, oh yeah, it's three to one. Oh, hey, look, the Cubs turned it around. Oh, hey, look, the Cubs have a four run lead. Oh my God, it's tied. Oh my God, they're going to extra innings. Oh my God, there's a rain delay. Like, <laughs> it's too much. I, I was joking like midway through the game. I was like, this game has its own TV tropes article. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I missed but, a good yeah. one. That made me it just oh, so good. It made me so happy. So if there's anything you want to add, Katie. Uh, my favorite thing from the week is, oh, so I mentioned a while ago there was a, a, a trailer for the new Netflix series, the series of unfortunate events that's coming to Netflix in January. And so this past week, there was another teaser that was released that actually showed something because the first trailer didn't really show anything. So this one was a, a Count Olaf teaser. So we saw Neil Patrick Harris as Count Olaf. And I'm even more excited about this series now. I feel like the tone seems right. And I I have high hopes. So that was my favorite thing from the week. I'm looking forward to that. All right. And I lied. I actually do have a favorite moment I'm going to share from the text. Um, you do? Okay. Well, then I get to share one too. Then you get one too. You get one too. Uh, I was just thinking back at everything we've read, everything we've experienced and looking at what has meant the most to me, to my life today, as compared to, you know, like, oh, I've always loved this section or whatever. It's like, what meant the most to me mm -hmm. this time? And it's when Aragorn and Gandalf climb the mountain and find the white, the sapling of the mm -hmm. white tree. And... Aragorn basically says, I don't know what to do. How can I rule this land? I'm going to die. And Gandalf says, the best thing you can do, the only way you can ensure long-term success is to love and ensure that everybody loves. And it's just such a beautiful scene. I think I actually broke down and started crying when we were talking about mm -hmm. it. Like, on the episode. I think that's the only time that's ever happened to me. But two years ago, I was in a really bad place in my life. And so many people got me out of it. One tiny act of love at a time. And you and Chase were part of that. Like, I couldn't leave bed. I was so depressed, I couldn't get out of bed. And one of the things that got me out of my house on a weekly basis was getting together with you two and recording this podcast. And there was so much more, you know, my grandma would invent errands for me just so she could pay me. And because of that, I spent more time with her than I had my entire life. And we didn't know it, but it was the last year of her life. And because she went out of her way to help me, we were closest when it mattered the most. And when I came back to New York, it's because people I knew uh, gave me second chances. And this election cycle has been so disastrous for everybody. I don't know a single person who hasn't lost a friend because of this election cycle. And when I realized that, and I realized that I was spewing hate and vitriol, I made this decision not to anymore. And I mean, sometimes I still get mad and say things that I shouldn't. But when I'm talking with people anymore I only try to share love and I only try and share respect and kindness and in doing that my life has changed so much and reading that passage 
was just such a beautiful reminder of the fact that you have the ability to make that choice. And it, you might not feel it immediately, but it is going to change your life in so many ways. Well, speaking of uh, making choices, I have to go with my favorite passage from all of the texts that we've read so far. And you probably know what it is. It's that moment at the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring where Frodo has this why me moment and says, I wish the ring had never come to me. And Gandalf's response, so do all who live to see such things. And he says the famous and favorite quote of mine that all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. And I think that's kind of a, a similar... I, I, I get a similar idea from that as what you've just talked about, John. But we may find ourselves in situations that we uh, wish had never happened, but it is ours to do with them what we can. And I think that's one of the biggest lessons that you can learn from, from The Lord of the Rings. And... Uh, it always gives me a lot of perspective. That one in the Not All Those Who Wonder Are Lost. I'm sorry, I have two. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and um, I mean, this is time to wrap things up anyway, but there's now a cat on my chest. So, <laughs> Hello, Jack. Um, I, yes, I just want to say once more, thank you, everybody, for making the past two years something incredible. I hope you stick around. And we're looking forward to what we do next. So before we leave, I want to give a thank you to our Patreon supporters. Thank you so much for uh, all of your support that you've given us for our editing needs, for sustaining our podcast, for for helping us out. So thank you, as always, to Ryan Hepler, Nathan Klump, Jody Shankland, Maud Abdul-Hamid, Kevin Reynolds, Dana Victor, Jason Savage, Mike Williams, Anna Dunlany, Ji Ying Fua, Kyle Thompson, Michael Smith, Tariq, Ignatius Pendergraph, Devin Mann, Ariel Alm, Brian Osborne, my mom, Margaret, Adam Kahn, Charlie, Ben Goldstein, Madison Roberts, Aaron Crawford, Benjamin John Macy, Avon McMaster, Jacob Verma, my dad, and Michael Laney. And we'll see you next week, everybody, on Interlibrary <laughs> Loan. Thank you for listening to Talking Tolkien. You can find us online at TalkingTolkien.com and you can send us an email to the professor at TalkingTolkien.com. We are also Talking Tolkien on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, and Stitcher. If you're an iTunes subscriber and you like what you hear, please be sure to give us a rating and review. We also have a Patreon account where you can donate as little as $1 per month to help us grow our podcast and help with expenses such as microphones and server space. Every little bit is appreciated. <laughs>